I invite you to turn me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20 uh, as we continue looking at uh, various portions throughout Scripture. Uh, speak concerning the doctrine of the church. Uh, this evening, we will look at one particular facet of the life of the church, what we refer to as the marks of the church. Uh, and as you recall, uh, per usual, I do have handouts available uh, in the back uh, to help guide these and for you to use these handouts uh, to study throughout the week. Part of our goal, again, in the mornings as we work away, uh, what we call a, a expository preaching, going line by line, precept upon precept, through what Scripture says in the mornings and the evenings, it's more doctrinal uh, in that we are looking at large swaths of Scripture, sometimes multiple Scriptures, uh, that we might uh, see what our Savior says concerning particular topics. So we'll look at Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 32, and then we'll look at a couple other passages as well. But this is our, our launching point. This is Paul speaking uh, to the church of Ephesus. Pay careful attention, he says, to yourselves. He's speaking to the elders uh, of the church. Please uh, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he has obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. And now I commend you, he says further on, to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those we're sanctified. I think this evening we have uh, before us some very practical questions. What does a faithful church look like? Very simple. Um, let's say you're about to go off to college, uh, moving away from home for the first time, uh, moving to a new city, perhaps uh, you're, uh, you've got a job interview and you've got to move to, let's say, Salt Lake City. Uh, and not all churches are equally alike. Where do you go? How do you t determine where to worship? How do you determine uh, where to join? Well, the good news is we have in Scripture some particular marks uh, that characterize what a faithful church looks like. Our Belgic Confession, just as a starting point, we see at the, I have at the top of this handout, this is the uh, 29th article of the Belgic Confession, one of our Reformed uh, Confessions of Faith. Uh, carve out, give us some basic descriptors on the basis of Scripture, and we'll look at these various passages that tell us what a faithful church looks like so that we, we might know, if we were to get, let's say you're going to go on vacation and you're looking for a church to visit, uh, or let's say, like I say, you move uh, to a new town. Here are those things, but also it's a good litmus test for us to examine our own selves, our own status as uh, this church. Are we, are we being faithful as a church, what is the criterion? Is that criterion a kick and rock band? Is that criterion, uh, you know, um, hundreds of people? Is the criterion um, any other number of things? Again, as we are with all things that we do, we turn to Scripture to find the evaluative tools, the diagnostics. As we see here, a Belgian confession in light of Scripture says this, the marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if it maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, 
and if church discipline is exercised in the chastening of sin. That's why we say there are three marks to the church. Preaching of the gospel, faithful administration of the sacraments, and the administration of church discipline. These are very practical things. Again, to keep in mind, you go to any church uh, anything place that calls itself a church, they might say we are, in fact, being thoroughly biblical. Uh, but if you look uh, through the halls of church history, you'll find that even uh, heretical groups and organizations would say the same thing. In the, in the fourth century in Egypt, you would have the, the so-called Arian churches, A-R-I-A-N, uh, that denied the divinity of Christ. And they would say, oh, we're being thoroughly scriptural. And so it, it might be helpful for us to go beyond some, some of the taglines that we're used to hearing to dig a little bit deeper to see what these marks actually look like. The litmus test for a faithful church consists in faithful preaching, the sacraments, and discipline. All three of these, I hope you'll see, are designed, and as I am going to try to argue this evening, are designed to help us grow in grace. Um, Might sound surprising, the last one, but hopefully, if you bear with me on that last point, you'll see Uh, what I mean by that. But the true church is concerned with your spiritual vitality according to biblical principles. And that's why these three marks are so important. Faithful preaching. What is a church if there isn't faithful preaching? What is a church if there isn't an administration uh, faithfully given of the sacraments? And what is a church if there is no discipline? I want you to see that the focus this evening is not simply on the how. We'll get at some of those things. But more fundamentally is the question as to whether or not they're even present. And that's what we'll look at. First, let's consider preaching. It's a simple question. I, uh, actually, when I first got here in November, it was a couple sermons I preached to try to get at this. What is faithful preaching? What constitutes faithful preaching? Is this uh, merely a time where I come up and give you know, some type of TED Talk or you know, uh, a couple little bullet points with a few uh, um, half-baked jokes here and there, or is preaching something more substantive? What we find at preaching according to the New Testament uh, uses a number of different words to describe its character, but at its base, preaching is proclamation. If Christ is king and Christ has been given a kingdom and the visible manifestation of that kingdom on earth is the church, then the preacher is the herald of this coming kingdom. The New Testament over and over again tells us Christ is king, his kingdom has come, and God's government is manifested in the church on earth. And so the preachers are heralds and even ambassadors. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. The purpose of the preacher, in one sense, is to tell you that everything is not okay. We have so many preachers uh, in this day and age who just simply want to kind of pat you on the head and say it's all okay. But what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 is as an ambassador, part of the task of the preachers to say things are not okay. We are exhorting you to be reconciled to God. What's the assumption? The assumption is you are not yet reconciled to God unless you have put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hence, the urging, the necessity, Paul says over and over again, to flee the coming wrath. The judgment of God is coming upon all men and the only safe anchor we have is found in trust in the Lord Jesus 
Christ. What constitutes faithful preaching then? Christ himself, it's one of the last things he says before he ascends to heaven. In Luke chapter 24, you could just, if you just want to jot this passage down, Luke 24, uh, verses 46 to 47, says that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that two things should happen, that Christ, according to the Old Testament, should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations in his name, beginning from Jerusalem. In other words, according to Christ himself, the purpose of preaching is twofold, to proclaim Christ and conformity to Christ. So what Paul says here in Colossians 1.28, him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning everybody, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Preaching is the proclamation of the death and resurrection of Christ as foretold by the, promised, uh, by the prophets. And that because Christ is risen, we are called to repent of our sins and put our hope in Christ as the only source of salvation. And so preaching consists of these two aspects, Christ and conformity to Christ. The forgiveness of sins through faith and the necessity of repentance. A church that does not do this is not a faithful church. If it, this is faithful preaching according to Christ. If that's not present in a church, it's time to find another church. If this pulpit is not preaching Christ, it is time to find another church or at least it's time to find another pastor. If this pulpit is not proclaiming repentance and faith, it is time to find another pastor or it is time to find another church. Because without preaching, without biblical preaching, this is not a true church. Paul says this uh, in Galatians chapter 1. He says, uh, but even if we, Paul's speaking of the, the apostles, if we, are, let's say even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Let him die and go to hell. It's an imprecation. It's a heavy task for the minister. There's only one gospel that is to be preached. There's not four gospels. There's not five gospels. There's not ten different gospels. Even when you read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, notice this. It's not uh, the, Mark, the, the gospel of Mark. The gospel of Matthew. It's the gospel according to Matthew. The gospel according to Mark, Luke, or John. It is a single gospel. To preach anything different is to deviate from the authorized proclamation that Christ has commanded his heralds to proclaim. Preaching is so important. Why? Because preaching is the way through which Christ saves sinners. That is the primary and chief and ordinary way by which it is done. Proper preaching of the gospel is how sinners are brought to saving faith. Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, it is the gospel that is God's power of salvation. It's not the charisma of the, of the preacher that is the power of God unto salvation. You have the most boring pastor in the pulpit, but faithfully preached. That message is still the very power of God. Why? 
because the proclaimed word, insofar as it aligns with Scripture itself, is said to be God Himself speaking. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we spent the past month uh, in that chapter in the mornings. That when the minister proclaims the gospel, the Spirit works through the ministry of the word, and it is as powerful as the act of the old creation itself. Just as God had said, let there be light, so light has shone in the darkness. Now through the ministry of the gospel, so the light of Christ has shone in our very hearts. Um, Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, when we came to you and we preached, you received it not as human opinion, but for what it really is, the word of God. Of course, that has something to do with our doctrine of Scripture as we read 1 Thessalonians, but more fundamentally, it's dealing with the nature of what preaching is. Faithful preaching, insofar as it aligns with God's inerrant word, itself constitutes the word of God. That's why the Second Helvetic Confession will say, the preaching of the word is the word. It is Christ himself speaking. Book of Hebrews If we could summarize the whole book of Hebrews in a nutshell, there's many ways in which we can uh, uh, do this, but I think one one way in which we can summarize in a nutshell the book of Hebrews is this, is the nature of God's speech to a pilgrim people. In former ways, in a variety of ways, God spoke to our fathers, the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Therefore, chapter 2, we should give more careful attention to the things which we are hearing. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25, do not refuse him who is speaking, who is the he of whom uh, the author speaks. It is Christ. Do not refuse Christ who is speaking, not simply Christ who has spoken. The implication is, according to the author of Hebrews, that the preaching of the word is the means whereby Christ governs his church presently. Christ is king now. We're not waiting for a future millennial reign for Christ to rule. Christ already rules. When he ascended on high, he took a seat at the right hand of the Father on high. And now, through his ordained ministers, the proclamation of the word faithfully administered is the means by which uh, Christ presently governs his church. Christ speaks from heaven through faithful preaching. And so if there is not faithful preaching, then Christ is not speaking to that church. That's why one of the, uh, you read the book of Amos, one of the most uh, uh, damning things that you find in the book of Amos is that there is a famine not simply of uh, bread and food. It's a famine of the Word of God. Heaven help us if that ever happens to the church. What is needed is faithful preaching. First Peter chapter 1, verse 12 says the same thing. I could go on and on and on. But what we see is that the point that Paul makes here and elsewhere is if there is no faithful preaching, there is no salvation. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 17 says this most clearly. Uh, faith comes through the hearing of the Word. And how will they hear without a preacher? If there is no preaching, there is no salvation. The purpose is not to gather here on Sunday and have a number of skits set out before us where we go home and we feel happy. We're smiling because we saw some type of performance. No, 
The reason we come here is to hear Christ remind us of our sin through the preaching of Scripture and to remind us of the great salvation that is found in Christ alone. could say more here, but I think you, I've said enough here. The purpose of the sermon is not simply to give you more biblical data. The purpose of the sermon is to conform you to look like Christ. I'm not trying to get you to win a game of Bible Jeopardy. My goal is to help you see Christ in all of His glory, in His person, His office, and His work. And that by seeing that, we would be changed from one degree of glory to another. So that's one of the marks of a faithful church. What are the other two marks? Well, we now move on to the sacraments. Of course, if you do a word search for the word sacrament in your Bible, you will not find it. It is not an unbiblical word, but it is a non-biblical word. Right? There are many words that we use to describe biblical concepts that are not found in Scripture. For instance, Scripture clearly teaches a doctrine of the Trinity. But we do not find the word Trinity in the Bible. Same is true here with the sacraments. You won't find the word sacrament in the Scriptures, but it is a word that we have that summarizes the biblical teaching of what Christ has commanded His church to do. Don't be turned off by the word. It's a good word. It's what we might call an extra-biblical word that, that summarizes biblical content. Scripture uses other words Words uh, you'll see in Romans chapter 4, uh, verse 11, describes these as signs and seals. I think that actually gets at it a little bit better. Uh, that's, uh, but sacraments are just fine. Uh, but yeah, we, he, we see uh, that these sacraments are signs and seals. They are ordinances that Christ has communicated and commanded His church to perform. What are those ordinances for the life of the church? There are only two of them, and it's very simple. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, how many of y'all are familiar with an embosser? Y'all know what an embosser is? Um, when I graduated from seminary, I have a, a, one of my best friends. He actually came out here for my ordination service. He got me an embosser. It's one of those, uh, uh, it's kind of like a stamp thing where you can imprint your own a seal or, or name onto a book so you can know that this book is property of Charles Williams. Um, it's something I, I, I carry in the office. It's, it's really lovely. It also makes a really good weapon for self-defense. It's pretty heavy. Um, not that I'm thinking about using it as a means for self anyways. Um, but what we see for a sign and a seal, it's something that helps communicate what the sacraments are. See, signs signify something. Uh, if you are, for instance, to go uh, to Disney World, you take your kids, I guess here, this side of the country, it'd be Disneyland, uh, and you decide to take a road trip, and you see the signs 400 more miles to Disneyland, you'd be a pretty terrible parent if you make it to one of the road signs and pull over and say, look, we've arrived. You don't confuse the sign for the thing signified. But there is a special relationship between the two. The sign points to the destination. And that's what the sacraments do. They are signs 
that point us to our destination. They are signs that point us to faith in Christ. And it is by these signs that the Spirit works to seal a work on our hearts. This is actually where the road sign metaphor actually falls apart, because road signs don't do this. But that in simple faith, in following what Christ has commanded, He has promised that His Spirit now seals that work in our hearts to communicate to us the benefits of redemption. That when we are baptized, it is more than simply coming forward and saying, I, I, you know, I, I want to be baptized. It is, it is Christ's own seal stamped upon you saying, you are mine. Baptism speaks more to what Christ does for us than the other way around. Property of Father, Son, and Spirit that is what baptism does. You read 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That's one of the things that Paul gets at. Where he points back to Israel's they're delivered through the Red Sea. Paul says they're in fact baptized into Moses as they pass through the Red Sea. And it shows that they belong no longer to Pharaoh. I mean, imagine what it would be like uh, walking through the, 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 waters, the baptismal waters of the Red Sea being baptized into Moses, as it were, to use that language of Paul. And you make it through the Red Sea, and, and the waters cave in, and Pharaoh is standing on the other side, shouting with a bullhorn, get back here, you still belong to me. Why should we even, why would any of the Israelites ever listen to Pharaoh anymore? Why? Because they can now point to the Red Sea and says there is now such a gulf between you and me that you no longer have dominion over me. It's the very point that Paul gets at in Romans chapter 6. Now that you've been baptized into Christ, sin shall not have dominion over you. That's why Luther himself will say, remember your baptism. Or larger catechism actually says to improve your baptism. It doesn't mean to try to get baptized better a second or third time around. Rather, it's to look back to that great moment in the history of redemption as it's applied in our own baptism and say this is the very thing that it signifies. Satan no longer has dominion over us. He can shout from across uh, the sea all he wants. But but he's a, he's a mouse with a microphone. He, he has no... No power, he has no jurisdiction now that we've been baptized into Christ. This is why the, I believe it's the Belgic Confession puts it like this. That Christ is our Red Sea. Christ is our Redeemer and Deliverer. So, baptism constitutes our new identity. Think of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul, in, in, in talking about the life of Corinth, which as we've seen as we're working our way through 2 Corinthians, Corinth is a high-maintenance congregation with a lot of problems. And Paul says, don't be, don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he gives the litany of sins, going everything from sexual sins uh, to, to, uh, to sins of the tongue, sins of the heart. And then he says what? And such were some of you. But now you've been washed in the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, by your baptism... Those things that used to have 
that used to define your very identity no longer holds sway anymore. That power of sin has been shattered. So that we could say when when you're struggling with temptation at 2 o'clock in the morning, remember your baptism. Baptism shows that you've been cut off from the world and you have now been washed and united to somebody greater, the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism Baptism in the name of the triune God. This is part of the Great Commission to go into the world making disciples, teaching them, so there's an instructive aspect to discipleship, but then also baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. In other words, we're not just called to go and make converts. We're called to go and make disciples. That they would be diligent to observe all that Christ has commanded. What's interesting is that just as baptism points to the death and resurrection of Christ. As we've been baptized into Christ in His death and raised to newness of life, so also the Lord's Supper points and signifies the benefits of the death and resurrection of Christ as well. There we go. Okay, I lost my spot. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, we hear it every Sunday when we have the supper. As often as you do this, what do you do? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Maybe it's a little bit easier, a little bit quicker to go through the Lord's Supper because you hear it every week. And I don't want your eyes to kind of glaze over at this point. But I do want you to remember uh, that the body and blood of Christ are signified in the bread and in the cup. And that by the Spirit... We are called to feast on Christ by faith. In other words, if baptism marks marks our entrance into the visible community of the people of God, then the Lord's Supper signifies the growth. It's an ordinance or sacrament uh, of continuance that we continue to do this to remind us to continually feast on Christ. The Lord's Supper is our feast in the wilderness. It's not a sacrifice. One of the things that we find, even as we participate in the supper, I think it spurs us onwards because uh, on the one hand, we want to say with the rest of the Reformed tradition, with the rest of Scripture, that Christ is truly present in the supper by the Spirit. But there is a sense in which Christ is also truly absent, physically, as His body is in heaven. And so as we get to feast with Christ every week, when we have the supper, we're also reminded we still haven't yet seen him. And this spurs us on. This gives us a, it's a foretaste of heaven. You think of the Lord's Supper as the appetizer and the marriage supper of the Lamb as the entree. Uh, this, this is, uh, here's the dipping sauce, right? This is a foretaste of the great meal to come when, we will, when our faith will finally be made sight. It's an oasis in the desert and a feast in the wilderness. A church that doesn't have that, if it doesn't have baptism, how can you tell who's part of the church and who's not? A church that does not have, uh, on some rotation, Scripture doesn't say how often we have to celebrate the supper, but if there's a church that's not celebrating it at all ever, 
How are we being deprived? The, the supper communicates to all our other uh, senses what we hear in the gospel. So we hear the sermon, it communicates the gospel to our ears. But when we have uh, the bread and the cup, it communicates to the nose and to the eyes and to the mouth as well. The very same gospel that we've heard with our ears to help further confirm and strengthen us on the road to glory. One final mark that marks out a true church from a false church. And that's discipline. It's perhaps the most difficult one to talk about. And I see that it's 6 o'clock. So what I'm going to do is we're going to hit the pause button on this. And we'll spend um, all of next week looking at discipline as a mark of the church. All right? I don't, I don't want to rush this. I think this is important to, to get down and to understand to remind us that, that Christ wants us to grow uh, even more than we want to grow. And sometimes discipline is needed for that growth. Uh, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you uh, for your church as we consider uh, the marks of the church this evening, a faithful ministry uh, of the word and the faithful administration of the sacraments. We ask that you would uh, help us uh, to evaluate our own standing as a church, uh, that we would be faithful to do all that you've commanded. Uh, bless us as we go home now, we pray, uh, and keep us safe that we might return next week to worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.